Tinakoto Kato and no my Harimai. Welcome to QA. Welcome to QA, Prime Minister Ole. <laughs> How are you? Yeah, good. I'm very good. How are you? Well, very good. Good. Very good. good. Very good. Thanks. We are in uh, Cockle Bay Primary School and I'm going to go quiet because something very magic is about to happen. John Campbell filling in for Jack Tame, who was having a really well-deserved break. Not having a break, as you can see, this guy, the PM-elect, Christopher Luxon, who was back at his old primary school, Cockle Bay Primary, in the, well, Botany electorate, which he won so resoundingly. How resoundingly? 343 votes cast at the Cockle Bay Play Centre, 240 of them for them. So today we're talking about the swing to national, the swing away from Labour, both to the left and to him on the right. We're also talking about the young people who didn't vote. Why did we lose them and how on earth do we get them back? But we begin here in Botany. Hello, yeah, Botany. Botany for life. With their mums and dads. Now that their man is PM, what is exactly they Law and order. Pretty much. Other than that, uh, I don't know, I haven't really thought about it. Less break-ins, yeah, more security for the staff and people who are working behind the counters. Have you had break-ins here? Yeah, this year, three. Three break-ins? Yeah. Ram raids overnight. Actually, there is one thing that I would like, and it would probably be to definitely have a look at the medical um, hospitals and things like that at the moment. Because normally my philosophy is, and it might not be right or wrong, is that they always seem to promise you everything and you don't seem to get anything. So I just never voted. But I did this time, because I think there need, needed to be a change. Not everyone in Cockle Bay is optimistic. I'm actually really scared. I don't think it's going to be good. And what are you most scared about? Um, mainly for the disability sector. No one's actually spoken really about it over the whole election. Um, you know, I've, I've got special needs children and there's nothing for them to gain, but everything for them to lose. I want uh, to make sure that we get our economy moving in the right way so we've actually got the resources to invest in our public services and, and that's what people voted for on Friday. They want us to govern for all New Zealanders and that's what I'm going to do uh, because I came to this job and I came to politics deliberately to solve problems and to, to realise opportunities that we've got. And we have a great country, we have a fantastic future, amazing people, amazing talent in this country and I want to be liberating it and catalysing it and uh, doing my job in government to make sure that you know, people can do that. Botany isn't just Cockle Bay, of course. It also includes parts of the much lower income area and historically Labour voting strongholds or Tara. What do you want from this new government? Well, for them to be respectful to the Māoris and the islanders and that. All the po Polynesians, the poor ones. Food is so expensive uh, and I need those places down. For all of us to feel appreciated and loved, then they want us to be in this country. When you say all of us, do you think some communities are less appreciated and less loved than others? Yeah, I reckon the Pacific Island community is. Um, at the end of the day, we're the ones that run all your factories, build all your houses. You know, you bring us over here for work and we work hard. I don't know. I, I just don't trust Luxton. Full stop. There was a really striking contrast between Cockle Bay and Ōtara, which are on opposite edges of the same electorate. For the most part, people in the more affluent Cockle Bay saw the incoming government as reflecting them. But people in Ōtara fear this won't be a government for them, 
and yet National has turned Auckland blue. Look at this. The first map is 2017, business as usual almost really, with Labour holding South Auckland and the inner west. You see top left in the red, that's Te Atatū. Nothing red over the bridge, but waits. 2020, look at that, a pincer movement. Over the bridge, further west, Labour red engulfing Auckland, with the Greens picking up Auckland Central. And now, kapow, it's incredible. Act picking up Tamaki to double the yellow, the Greens holding, but red simply gone from large swathes of the city. And look at that strip of blue between the red. That is fascinating. In that blue is Mount Roskill, formed in 1999. It's only ever voted Labour. Before that, it was the Roskill school electorate and basically voted Labour for generations. In 2020, Michael Wood's majority was, wait for it, almost 14,000 votes. On Saturday night, with the specials yet to be counted, he lost it to National. Why? And is there a larger significance in the fact that the electorate, with the most New Zealanders who answered Asian to the census question about ethnicity, have swung so dramatically to National? I asked Mount Roskill's first ever first ever national MP, Dr Carlos Chung, why he thinks he won. I think the main reason is people looking for changes. Um, because people in Maoist have been suffering from cost of living, increased crime, and I think they want to make a change. And they believe national can actually deliver their promise and make a change. How many doors did you knock on? Well, in the past six months, I almost more than around 6,000. Yeah. And when you go knock, 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 and the door opens, there would be a great many people who had no idea who the hell you were, right? Yes. You would be meeting many of them for the first time. That's right. A lot of people say, oh, who you are? Oh, you're actually from National. So I like to, this is why it's important for me to do door locking, because I'm a new candidate, and it's important for me to actually introduce myself in person. So when, you say, when they say, oh, you're from National, in a Labour stronghold, what was your message to them? Well, it's... Let's try to just introduce who, who am I, what's my background, um, and also tell them what we can do for them. And they, well, either they will come back to see me and say, hey, Carlos, I have this kind of concern, um, or they want to know more about the policy. Um, as I say, people are looking for change, so they're more interested in how our policy can help them. OK, I want to come back to that thing that you said that they ask you, who are you and what's your background? Who are you and what's your background? So, I mean, always I will start with, you know, I'm a new candidate for Mount Moscow. And, you know, for me, I think it's very important to have, uh, you know, in-person interaction with people. Um, so I will tell them I've been living in Mount Moscow. I'm a local. I've living in Mount Moscow for more than 15 years. And I did a lot of community work in the past seven years as well. Um, helping the people in Mount Wasku and we try to tell them what, you know, to listen to them, what concern they have or what have been struggling, like, you know, bothering them for the past, you know, six years and tell them how our policy can actually help them. Childhood in Hong Kong, right? Came to New Zealand when you were 16? Yes. Yeah. Why did your mum and dad want to come to New Zealand? What were their aspirations? What brought them here? I think it's... During the old time, I think New Zealand is a very better, is a better place, is a best place in Earth, and they are very different compared to Hong Kong. And they believe that coming here, I will able to have better opportunity, um, and I have a high chance of success as well. Yeah. So, it was aspiration for you, for their son? I think for them is they don't realize. Um, to be honest, it's very hard to predict the future. So for them is. They want to provide the best opportunity for me, and then I will go from there. And you had a fantastic opportunity because you went to Auckland Grammar, right, which yes, is a great right. school. Yes. And then you went to the University of Auckland right. and studied science. You're a PhD. Yes. 
Uh, no one will understand it, Carlos, but tell us what your PhD is in. So my, my PhD topic focuses on diabetes. Um, diabetes induced cardiovascular disease. And we try to use a drug called Tita to um, chelate the copper in the blood and then to improve the cardio function. Right, you've lost me already, but it's very, very <laughs> impressive. So given this extraordinary PhD, which was about the relationship between diabetes, copper and the heart, why on earth, how on earth did you move into property management? Well, I think this is a very interesting turning point, I think. Um, no one would expect you from a scientist turn to become a business owner. But sometimes I think, you know, God has a meaning to, you know, for me. And because of that, I managed to talk to a lot of people in my community as well, managed to, you know, engage with different people. And I think this helped me um, to become a politician because now I understand the needs from different people. But, but why the segue from science to property? Because you have, you're a director and a shareholder in Enfield Property Management, you are sole director and shareholder in Lifestyle Property Management. Why? I guess this time is really to put, what is my priorities? That time I newly married, I get my family. So I need to think about what to do in the future as well. And obviously, I can go overseas just like 90% of my colleagues, which you know, graduated, moved on to different country and work, and they're very successful. But one thing is I really like New Zealand. I want to stay here as well. And you know, it's, being a science is very hard environment. At that time, like, it's very hard to get funding from government. So I need to think what's the best for my family. And I want to have a sustainable um, income for, for my family as well. So, after a long, long decision, a long discussion with my wife, I think starting up a property management company will be one of the best way to go. And how's it gone? Well, you can see me now. I think um, it did well. <laughs> okay. When you won the candidacy for Mount Roskill, you said I'm aspirational for the people of Mount Roskill. That's right. And there are some people who are in desperate economic straits, mm. not very far from us here. And you said that you will advocate for policies that will get them ahead. You talked about finding people almost, so people having to find almost $5,000 more a year to cover the cost of rent in Auckland. Yes. So, which is a hell of a lot of money when you're on a low income. That was the point you were making. How are you going to help those people? How will National help those people? I think this is why we important. One of the policies we try to get people back to work, and I found out this is one of the. Um, I think this is one of the way to break the circle, uh, the cycle. For me, I've been helping, you know, working in the community for the past seven years. I can see people still struggle. Um, you know, after seven years, their their life not going to be improved, and they come here every week to try to get food boxes, and they still struggle to put food on table. So obviously, the I mean, existing approach. It's not working for them. And um, I can see so many examples in here. People actually work hard to success and they can move you know, to a better life as well. So our policy actually can help them, provide them more opportunity to success in, uh, or inspire them to success as well. Hmm. $10 a week tax cuts if you're on the minimum wage. Hmm. Carlos, you can't look me in the eyes and tell me that that's going to inspire people to success, is it? I mean, that's insultingly little. Well, we can't just look at a single policy and judge that. We need the overall package. Like for us, I mean, we are not trying to say, oh, you get extra $10 or something, but we want to provide, a, we want to strengthen our economy. 
so we can have more opportunity for them to success. Like, Carlos, they can start their own small businesses. Masterful political answer for a man doing his first interview as a new MP. <laughs> I'm sorry, congratulations. I want to come back to Nationals tax cuts and the, and, and the interest deductibility for rental properties being fully restored by 2026. So Labor estimates, and there's been some economic support for this, support from economists, that that would be worth about $6,000 a year to landlords. Should, given your concern about the high costs of rent, should landlords pass that on to their tenants? Well, I mean, I work in a property management business, so one thing we know that a lot of owner, uh, our landlord actually struggle as well with a lot of extra costs being, you know, applied to them in the past six years. And, you know, for them, they will pass some of the cost to the tenant as well. With our new policy, we hopefully reduce the cost for the landlord as well. So, would they, then, so if you reduce the cost, would they pass yeah, it on so to the tenants? At least they have less pressure to increase rent every year. I think this is one thing we, we, we try to achieve as well. Because I'm trying to work out who this policy is for. Mm. And you've talked about the prohibitive costs of rents in mm. the city. And there will be lots of people who know exactly what you mean because they're paying them. Who is this policy for? Is it for the landlords or is it for the tenants? I think it's for everyone. I think it's for both. But it's only for both if the landlords pass the reduced costs on, right? Yes. That's right. But um, one thing, I mean, I work in this industry. Um, when I first started the business, the cost of you know, running an investment business is much less than now. The pressure for our landlord to increase rent is much less. They probably won't say that, hey, Carlos, I'm not going to increase rent for another year or two, or some of them probably haven't been increased rent for the past five years. But only recently when a lot of um, costs have been applied to them, they have no choice, but they need to pass on that extra um, you know, cost to the tenant. So well, by cutting the cost, I think they will certainly release the pressure of increasing rent as well. Do you own rental properties? I do. And will you pass on uh, the money you are going to make as a result of Nationals uh, tax cuts policy? Will you pass, will you reduce rents? One, one thing you should know that my, almost of my, you know, my rent is pretty much like lower than the market rent. So I don't think I actually increased much, um, you know, rent in the past couple of years. Yeah. Because one thing I think we need to think about is not all the landlord will pass on the cost to the tenant as well. A lot of this, a lot of good tenant there, a good landlord there, actually will you know, look after the good tenant. And they will say, oh, yeah, I understand that there's a lot of, um, you know, the price, you know, a lot of pressure for, for, for the tenant. And they was like, Carlos, how about we just, you know, freeze it for, for in a one to two years and make sure they all go for this tough time as well. Tell me about what your ambition is. If I meet you here in three years' time, yes. and you have been re-elected mm. as the MP for Mount yes. School, and it is a remarkable achievement, mm. Carlos, to win the seat from Labour, mm. what do you hope will be different? So the first thing I always tell my constituent is, I want to make this place more safe. So people, you know, if they have a child, they will feel that they are safe to actually walk from a bus stop to back home. I think this is the priority, the safety is the priority in Mount Wasco. And I want to make sure they have a safe space to live in. What about those people at the bottom of the heap that you talked about so movingly when you won the candidacy? Yes. The people who you were concerned about the high cost of their rent. What do you hope to do for them? And I remember John Key, former mm -hmm. National Party Prime Minister, visiting a street not far from us here, McGeehan Close, which became kind of emblematic of the people who were existing in the margins or not existing in the margins. What do you hope to do for those people? 
For us, we want to strengthen our economy, so provide more opportunity for them to success. So maybe a you know higher pay job as well, or or just some more 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 job opportunity for them, so they can actually um, you know get more money, get more income, get a better life for their family. Hmm. We're getting to the end of this interview, and it's so lovely to spend time with you. Uh, roughly forty-eight percent, I think, just under half the people who live in this electorate identified themselves as of Asian ethnicity in the, in the census. About 52%, just over half, were born overseas. How do you feel that, that community, and boy, that's a big and broad community. I mean, Asian is a huge term. But how do you feel they view politics? Is this a community you believe is increasingly likely to vote national? Um, I think... Well, I've been talking to a lot of them, and you know, as one of I'm an immigrant as well. I think I have a part, I have experience. I know what they've been struggle, what challenging they've been facing, and obviously most of us just come here for better living or better opportunity for their family. So um, I think this very much um, national value. We provide opportunity people to success. So I hope that they will keep voting for national for the next couple of years. Yeah. Because I think this, this important failure was we all believe that people work hard should get reward. That's Mount Roskill MP elect Carlos Chung, first ever national MP in that electorate. Later on QA, young people, why did so many of them not vote and what do we do to re engage them? Because they have to re engage. Also, $600 million off the public service budget. That's what the Nats are talking about. Act wants more. What does it mean for our public service and for the people who work in it? I suspect that may be many of our viewers. But coming up, property investors are primed, pumped after the election. More about that after the break. Welcome back to Q&A. We're delighted to have your company. Uh, coming up on the programme, young voters, where do they disappear to? How do we get them back? And the public service, are there cuts ahead? But first, one of the areas National is promising their biggest set of changes in is the property market, impacts on the property market, impacts on renters, the whole lot. So Fina Owen went to look at how the industry is responding to National's election win. With pre-election polls signalling a shift to the right, players in the property market were already at the starting line. The election night result, they say, has brought clarity. It was an aha moment for people who realised that this is actually going to happen. The phones have definitely started ringing from some uh, groups of buyers are out there, in particular investors, so they're starting to look to re-enter the market because of the change of government. Property investor and tutor Steve Goody advertised his upcoming investment seminar before the election with little response. Post-election, suddenly all of our webinars are full and interest is back and we've got a lot of ticket sales for that just in the last few days. I think everybody's come back to the fact that the sun's going to come out, there's going to be another day and that we're situation normal again. 
And on top of that, there are extra incentives for investors. Nationals proposed fiscal shifts and policy repeals aimed at providing more housing stock for buyers and renters. What I'll be saying to you is that we are going to put downward pressure on rents by actually unwinding the Bright Line test from 10 to 2 years right. and unwinding interest deductibility and changing some of the tenancy laws. Tax non-deductibility, it's basically made every rental property in New Zealand worth a little bit less, which means that now with it being taken out again over a period of time by this proposed National Act coalition, that every rental property in New Zealand is going to go up in value a little bit more. It also means that we don't have to do the 90 days to evict a bad tenant anymore. We can do the no-cause evictions. Now, I'm on the fence whether that's a great idea or not. I know yeah, not such a good idea for tenants, is it? Well, no. The election result really is a bad forecast for renters. Over in Wellington's Aro Valley, Renters United President Geordie Rogers is not feeling the post-election glow. If I was a landlord, I'd be rubbing my hands. It's plenty of money going into my back pocket. Um, I can guarantee that renters won't see a single cent of that, uh, and Treasury agrees with that analysis too. other end of the market, foreign eyes are on a piece of paradise. National also promises to partially repeal the ban on foreign buyers by allowing them to purchase properties valued above $2 million if they paid a 15% buyer's tax. I just think that $2 million cap might be a little bit low. If it was at $5 million, would a lot of international buyers looking at New Zealand as an immigration bridge to buying a property here and moving here, would they see the difference between 2 and $5 million? Would the $2 million threshold also have a bit of a negative impact on people wanting to get into the market here? It could possibly, yes. The 15% tax helps, but a couple trying to purchase a $1.7 million property that are beaten because that $1.7 million property becomes worth $2 million so that it can compete internationally, they're going to feel a little bit beat up. And this week after the election, potential buyers from overseas were already hitting local property pages. There's been quite an you know, uptake in, uh, in traffic through the website, particularly from the USA and Australia over the last week since the election. Mark Harris is Managing Director of New Zealand Sotheby's International. We're not making too, much you know, too many promises at the moment. Obviously, Winston's still involved behind the scenes. He says in times of upheaval elsewhere, New Zealand is often seen as a safe haven. I hate to say it, you know, it, it, it sometimes other, you know, other areas of the world going through suffering and pain has seen an inquiry pick up uh, in this part of the world. And that's sort of understandable, isn't it, when uh, you look at a place like New Zealand and consider it a safe haven. It'll be interesting over the next few weeks, you know, obviously with everything going on in the Middle East, if we see, uh, if we know it's a pick up from that part of the world. Back in Wellington, are people reluctant to buy and sell right now? This is a public servant's town, and National and ACT have promised to slash jobs. Yes, there'll certainly be people out there a bit worried about what's next for me, particularly with the language coming from the, from the new government. But one of the things that we see is that when a new government comes in, any change of government, they will have new projects, they will be doing something different, wanting to implement new things, and, and a lot of those people will get shifted around. While the last few years has seen little activity from investors, it's been good for first home buyers. What's next? 
I don't have a crystal ball. My best guess uh, would be that we're going to see a lot more volume come back, a lot more sales transactions are going to happen because they've been unnaturally low. It's been a tough couple of years, so um, you know it is great to have some enthusiasm back. And you know, we don't want to see prices uh, multi-year capital gains. It's bad for society. What we want is volumes to come back so buyers, sellers and agents can transact again. And they're not wasting any time. Next weekend, investors gather for their industry conference in Queenstown. That is Fena Owen. If you want to contact Q&A, please call it on May. These are our main platforms. Set us up on email. Uh, the platform formerly known as Twitter, now called whatever it's called, and Facebook. Coming up in the show, we're talking about 19% of all jobs, one in five jobs. So for everyone watching, there is a one in five chance we're talking about you if you work in the public sector. What the hell is going to happen if Nationals' budget cuts take place? But first, I'm sitting beside three really inspiring young people. And I'm so delighted they're here. And we're going to talk about youth voter participation, which was dismally low in some places, how we increase it, and how we make young people engage in politics. Under this government, outcomes for young people have continued to get worse. The key to solving many of the issues that young people are facing this election is to get on top of the cost of living crisis. And we can do that by actually tackling inflation and tackling a lot of the government's wasteful spending. Over the course of this year, due to COVID-19, I've seen a lot of students, including my own friends, sacrificing their youth to provide for their families by dropping out to work. So what are you going to do to ensure that our students' futures are taken care of in the oncoming years? And so none of our students are left behind. I decided actually I'll make this decision now to, to stand um, and to help contribute and to make Rotorua be that place where young people want to stay here, young people want to move back here. We don't yet know final numbers, of course, but we do know ordinary voter turnout was lower this election than last and even slightly lower than 2017. And what will be more pronounced is that it will be lower with younger voters and even more low with uh, young low-income voters. Democracy requires participation. We see in Hauraki, Waikato and in Wellington Central what young candidates with highly motivated campaign teams can achieve. But when young people don't vote, Parliament is shaped by older people. And there are generational differences in responses to climate change, inequality, housing, the treaty. This morning, three young people for whom politics and participation truly matters. Fili, it's so lovely to have you here. Uh, Fili in 2020 so powerfully raised the plight of young people forced to leave school during the pandemic to get jobs to support their families. Fili is an acclaimed poet, brilliant poet, a climate change and indigenous activist. And she now works with Greenpeace, who are very proud to have her, even though she's not speaking on their behalf today. Also here, Fisher Wang. Fisher's sitting beside me, who was a teenager when elected to the Rotorua Lakes Council and was returned to council for a second term in last year's local body elections. The highest polling councillor, Fisher in Rotorua, go you. And then the venerable old, uh, old chap on the couch, Felix Paul, 25, our oldest panellist. That's right, eh, Felix? Law graduate, law clerk. Comms graduate too, is that right, Felix? Yeah, yeah, studied comms at university, enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. Go, Felix. And number 25 on the act list, an ex-candidate in Auckland Central, which of course was won by Chloe Swarbrick. Thank you all three of you for being here. Fisher, Feely and Felix, we're really delighted to have you amongst us, uh, with us. Can we start with you, Fisher? What did you make of the election? What do you think about uh, what is going to happen over the next three years? Well, I think there is still 
a bit of uncertainty. I mean, obviously we saw the country wanted change, uh, but just how far that change goes, I think we're still yet to see with the special votes to come in, uh, whether or not it's going to be a two-party coalition or a three-party coalition government. Do you, and feel, do you feel generally hopeful or generally despondent or somewhere in the middle? Well, I like to see myself as a bit of an optimist, so I want to you know, try and look at the, the, what could be positive out of this as well. And I'm hoping that a lot, uh, particularly in the local government area, uh, that the support there will continue and build on that uh, movement that has been created with a lot of the reforms. Um, and a lot of the work that has gone into our infrastructure, mm. as we've seen across the country. Angela Filipili, can I ask you how you are feeling after the election? Um, you know, no matter who's in power, people power continues. The work on the ground, the grassroots work, our community leaders who exist outside the bounds of parliament, they will continue to do the work for us. So that makes me hopeful. The election over the past year, does that make me hopeful? It makes me angry and it makes me passionate and it makes me want to do more for our communities because they need that help. Um, I don't think that the election was thinking about lower income people or the Pacific people or South Auckland people when they were doing a lot of their campaigns. And so I would say I'm hopeful, but not because of the election, because I believe that our people are worth the hope. Felix, can I bring you in here? Because you belong to a party act who did very well and will almost, well, inevitably be part of a coalition, whether, I mean, to pick up on Fisher's point, I guess the question is whether it's a two-party or a three-party coalition. So how are you feeling, Felix Paul? Um, I'm feeling cautiously optimistic. I'm very pleased by the result, but I think that, um, you know, I look at National in 2008, I look at Labour in 2017, I see two periods of government which really haven't served young people. And I think what we need is real change. And if we're just going to get another key government or another Labour government, then I'm very worried. And so uh, I want to see some real change. Yeah, Matthew Hooten's point about the key government always was that it had this extraordinary popularity and therefore an extraordinary mm. mandate, and it did nothing with it. Exactly. And I guess people on the left have made the same criticism, setting aside the pandemic response, to Jacinda Ardern to a certain extent, particularly post-2020 in areas like inequality, right? Let's pick up on young participation. I just want to go through. So, Fili, you vote in Mangari, 46% of 18 to 24-year-olds are involved, uh, enrolled. Fisher, you vote in Rotorua, 55% of 18 to 24-year-olds are involved. Felix, you stood in Auckland Central, 85% of 18 to 24-year-olds are involved. So what does it tell us, and we know that Auckland Central is the most affluent of those three electorates, what does it tell us that young people in affluent electorates are more likely to vote and therefore to participate? Philly, can I start with you? Because Mangere is 46%. I believe that a lot of people, when they don't see themselves reflected in elections, they're less likely to vote. And so our young people from Mangere, from South Auckland, from low, lower socioeconomic communities, they don't want to vote if they don't see themselves reflected in whoever's trying to buy their vote, whoever's trying to get their vote, you know? And so we have some of the highest rates of child poverty, the highest rates of child abuse, the highest rates of a lot of the problems that we clutch our pearls and wipe our tears at, but suddenly all of that empathy goes out the window when it comes to elections and it comes to one of the sacrifices we have to make for our children. And I think we forget that our children can tell who cares and who doesn't care. And when they see a system that doesn't care, no matter which way it goes, they are less likely to vote. And so I don't blame them for not coming out and voting because sadly, that's just how life is. I, I want to come back to you, Philly, but I, I, I want to pick up on that. Felix, 
When you turned on the telly and watched the leaders' debates, for example, and it was Chris v Chris, did you see yourself there? Now, I'm not even going to ask Feely that question because it's kind of insulting, and I, I, Feely, I suspect I can guess that the answer is emphatically no, right? Yeah. Did you see yourself there, Felix, reflected um, in those two middle-aged men? No, to be honest, I was immensely disappointed by both the leaders' debates. I think the first one was, uh, to be honest, a little bit boring, and the second one was just a, a fight. Um, I think that what I looked for was real change and a focus on young people, a different way of thinking. Um, and what I saw was two parties arguing over the most minute details, you know. Um, I think that, you know, the reason why I support the ACT Party is they've got a totally different approach to government, one that really works for young people and their goals, that actually tackles the huge issues. Does, because... it, work, does it work for the young people Feely's talking about? Does it work for the young people who had to quit school during the pandemic to go and work? to support their families? Does it work for people on minimum absolutely, wage? I'm not absolutely. having a go here. So how does it work, absolutely. Felix? Because at the end of the day, if you want to solve those core issues, you know, those cost-living issues, we need a productive economy where people have high wages. And the way you do that is you make it easier for people to cooperate, for communities to come together, to start businesses, to employ people. But when you have government get in the way and make it difficult, actually you get poorer outcomes for those people. And housing is a perfect example where government overregulation has led to house prices increasing. It's led to a situation where people can't afford things. I mean, up to 50% of people's income every week goes towards renting. Mm. And that situation doesn't work for young people who are all renters. Fisher, I want to come to you. There's a beautiful story in 2019, when you were 19, right? And you became uh, a councillor, Rotorua Lakes councillor. I think you received a call after the shift at McDonald's, right? Telling you you'd become a councillor. And you're just like, what the hell? I can't believe I've been elected. <laughs> Last election, October, you got the most votes of any councillor in Rotorua. So what did you do? What are you now, 22, 23? 23 now. 23, elderly, 23. What did you do <laughs> to get people to engage, Fisher? I think that's what the young people bring to politics is that uh, more engagement and, and I think authentic engagement as well. Um, like Philly said, I think young people bring this energy towards uh, politics and you know, I think create a bit of hope for our future generations, for the future of our country. I came visit you in Rotorua. I felt really hopeful after the visit. I don't often say that after spending time with a politician. How do we retain that? And how do we get it into... I mean, this is, a, in a sense, the point that Felix is making. How the hell do we get it into the upper levels, mm. right? Because when I see Chris v Chris, I'm feeling a whole lot of words, and you'd have to go a long way down the list before you get hope, right? So how do we get hope into that equation, Fisher? Oh well, yeah, uh, what Philly mentioned before as well around the um, issues that Mangari faces, Rotorua faces as well. Mm. But I think we're housing also in particular, faced right? housing, absolutely. The socioeconomic issues and the fact that Rotorua is, is kind of in the middle between a provincial um, district mm. and a city. city. Yeah. Um, so we have quite a few barriers like that that we have to we have to kind of go over. Um, but I think for Rotorua, it's and for my campaign, I guess, it was a, a lot about, you might not agree with me, but you can trust that I will listen to all voices. I will hear everyone and make a decision on the best interest for Rotorua and do that with integrity. And I think that's something that 
that has probably been a bit lacking mm. in some of our leaders and something that will help, hopefully help build that trust. And I want to pick up on that thing, which is listening and voices and having a voice. And I want to quote a, a line, a beautiful line from uh, 275 Love Letters to Southside, Philly. Uh, our daughters become mothers to their siblings so young because their parents are working shifts at night. Do those daughters have a voice in Parliament now? And if we look at Labour's Pacifica caucus, for example, it was 11 MPs. Chris Farfoy left, it was 10. National at the moment have one Pacifica MP in uh, their caucus, and she, Angie, may not even hold that seat. Mm. So who are the voices of those young women you wrote so beautifully about? I think their voices speak for themselves. I think that the... The people in power need to listen to those voices and know that it doesn't come from a single person. Are they I don't think, no, I don't think from the selection that they are. I think that people have chosen to choose their economy and everything that comes with it, yes, but at the expense of who is the question that we need to be asking. And I don't think that it's a question that people are comfortable asking themselves, but it's one that we need to because we know, like with when, my own experience, I've been a child laborer I've worked before, before I had to work. And I think people think that everyone gets the same childhood in this country, and that's just simply not true mm -hmm. for our communities. We don't get the same childhoods, we don't get the same privileges, and we don't get to start at the same starting line. Some of us have to run marathons to get there. And so we need to consider those children. Do I think that anyone in parliament is being a voice for those children? I don't know. I just don't know at this point. Yeah, From the basis of the election, I believe that the only one who can authentically tell those stories and tell those voices are the children themselves. Mm. And that requires a listening that I don't think politics can capture. Felix, I want to segue a bit from Philly. Uh, and it's very difficult. Philly's very difficult to follow because I'm, I, I always want to stop and digest what she says. So I'm going to change the subject somewhat. And that is go to Tamaki, where Brooke Van Velden who was what? She was 31 when she was, she was 30 when she was campaigning. She just turned 31. Beat Simon O'Connor. Now, mm. Tamaki's a conservative electorate. Man, that's Rob Muldoon's electorate, right? This is rich white folk, by and large. Forgive the generalisation, Tamaki. And they voted for a younger, way more socially liberal woman. Now, she's from the ACT Party, so it's not a radical departure, but Simon O'Connor is a conservative, middle-aged man. What was Tamaki telling us, do you think, when they voted for Brooke Van Velden? Were they voting for her youth and her relatively liberal positions, or were they voting for ACT? I think they were voting for Brooke because Brooke spoke to everyone in that community. She didn't just speak to rich white, you know, rich white men. She spoke to, to women. She spoke to people who were finding it very tough, and she offered real solutions. And, I mean, Brooke worked immensely hard in that electorate, mm. door knocking and doing street corners all across the electorate. And I think she's really earned her result. I'm really proud of it to see another young person winning an electorate. I want to go through some very quick Q&A questions like the leaders debate. So, you know, just want to pick up on those. Should we teach civics in schools? Fisher, I know the answer to Absolutely. this. Absolutely. Yes, Philly? Yes. Felix? I mean, if the school wants to teach it, for sure. That's a good act response. Uh, should the voting age be reduced to 16, Fisher? Yes, but I would like to see it introduced with local government first. Philly? I would say yes. I think the last election I was 17, I wasn't old enough to vote, but I got dragged through that election anyways. So. <laughs> Sorry, I was part of dragging you through that election, Philly. <laughs> exactly. So I think that 16-year-olds should be able to vote. Felix? 
you know, you've got to pick an age, and so 18's fine, I think. Why? Why, why? why isn't 16 the better age? Well, Given the point Philly's making about the pressures on people at 16 and yeah, 17. I think it's a mistake to think that if you drop the age, somehow you're going to get young people engaged. Young people aren't, enge- aren't not engaged because the voting age is 18 instead of 16. Yep. Young people aren't engaged because politicians don't speak to their issues. So that's a real problem, not the voting age. I think it's a bit of a... Well, if they're step. old enough to pay taxes, they're old enough to vote. That's what I think. I want to ask you, and this is a really tough question to, to plonk on you, and this, we're, we're going to end on this. So I'm going to start at that end of the couch because I don't think I've started down there. What do you most hope for from this government, Felix? Um, I think I really hope for a change in the way we run government. I think that for too long it has got in the way of you know real progress in our society and actually getting on top of huge issues like productivity and housing. And so if come budget we see that real change, I'm going to be real glad. Feely? Mm. I would hope that they would put environment first. I say that mm. because, you know, there's a lot of talk about the economy versus the environment. But the thing is, with the rate that, that climate change and natural disasters are coming, the real cost of living comes to whoever's rich enough to survive the next natural disaster, which is a terrible place for our communities to be at. Um, I would hope that they would also consider the fact that we are in the Pacific and that indigenous voices matter, that indigenous justice is climate justice. I would hope that they would consider the fact that Tuvalu is going to be digitalized. It's going to go from a land with mm. country to a website on the internet, which is dystopian. It's dystopian. Let's call it what it is. Let's not pretend like focusing the economy and putting the environment to the side and having climate policies that focus on individualistic actions instead of systemic change is going to help the most of the people in the country when they weren't simply. I would hope that they would listen to those voices and be receptive to them. Um, but that's my most hopeful hope. <laughs> mm. Fisher. Well, I would hope that uh, a lot of the reform repeals that have been promised by um, the incoming government won't just be repealed for the sake of repealing it. I think, you know, whether or you disagree with the method of how how those reforms have happened and the progress with them, uh, we all agree that the system is not working. And that is across the board, you know, with infrastructure, with our social issues you know, with the cost of living. Um, but with local government as well, I think, you know, with the RMA reforms, with the local government uh, local government reforms, and even the Three Waters reforms, um, there's details in there that I think will be very valuable to how we actually start enacting that change because we need to do it now. We can't let it <laughs> kick the can down the road and, you know, wait until the next massive uh, natural disaster and floods to hit um, you know, areas in our country. Fisher Wang, Aangela Fili Fepulai Tapuai, and Felix Poole. The three of you, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate having you in here. And um, I urge you to keep participating and keep making the difference that you're so determined to make. Thank you. Stay with us, Q&A, we'll be right back.
The period immediately after a new government is elected can be a time of great uncertainty. What will they do? What might it mean for us? One thing National has said it will do is fund its tax cuts with a $600 million reduction in public spending. Act wants it cut by more. Now, you can't cut public spending by that much without losing public service jobs. National has given few details but insisted they'll be in non-essential back office roles. Jonathan Boston is Emeritus Professor of Public Policy at the School of Business and Government at Victoria University. We visited him in Wellington, where people are disproportionately likely to work in the public service, to ask him what this might mean. Altogether, our public sector employment is around 19% of total employment, which is just a little bit over the OECD average. So we're pretty close. So to we're the, talking roughly one, one job in five? In roughly one in five. Right, so that is an enormous number of people. Mm. And if we look out the window here, we can see the beehive. Mm -hmm. It's about to have new occupants yes. in the form of a new Prime Minister who has talked about cuts of somewhere in the region of 6.5%, mm -hmm. potentially working with a coalition partner who's talking about even more significant cuts. Yes. Is there trepidation? Is there uncertainty? How are people feeling now? Mm. Well, I suspect there's considerable anxiety uh, among uh, particularly senior people in the core public sector, that's the 40 or so government departments and departmental agencies, uh, about what is coming. Because if the government was to cut roughly uh, $600 million from their budgets... Which is the 6.5% Christopher Luxon's talking about, right? C correct. And so that's, that's, so that's, sorry to interrupt, but that's lower than one of his coalition partners wants. Yes, a lot yes, less. Yes. So, so that's $600 million in, in a budget of around $6 billion for the core, uh, plus they're proposing to cut around $400 million uh, uh, from the expenditure on consultants and yep. contractors, which is around $1.2 billion per annum. So th th those are pretty substantial cuts, and we have to bear in mind we're in a context where there's inflation of around five to six percent. So if you were to cut um, around five hundred million, six hundred million, um, that's that's a, you know very substantial reduction in uh, expenditure on the core public sector. Uh, and in the context of inflation, you're talking cut, real cuts of about 12, 13, 14 per cent. Now, that won't be in every department because it's pretty clear that there are going to be areas of the public sector that are going to be expanded. For example, almost certainly there's going to be further investment in, in corrections. Um, so there'll be more prison officers and more prisons, I guess. Uh, there's also proposals to expand the defence forces how quickly the government wants to achieve those sorts of reductions. Um, if it wants to achieve them very quickly, for example, in the uh, financial year 2024-2025, uh, then it would result in very significant staffing reductions uh, over the next 12 months. And, and that would almost certainly entail uh, some redundancies. So I think one of the questions that people are going to be asking themselves in the public sector and among ministers is, you know, how much uh, would the government want to spend on redundancy payouts? Um, most people don't think that's a very good use of public money. <laughs> uh, uh, on the other hand, if you're not prepared to actually you know, make people redundant and pay them out, then, then it's going to take longer, other things being equal to, to reduce the, the size of the core public sector 
uh, by the amount that's probably um, in people's minds. For example, the ACT Party wants to return the core public sector to about where it was uh, six years ago. 2017, yeah. Which was about 47,000. So that's, that's a reduction in you know, roughly 15,000 um, people, uh, which is a lot of people. On election night, one of our panellists suggested that that the public service, that Labor might regard the public service as having let it down in some areas, having worked too slowly, having worked mm. too cumbersome, having taken too long, I guess. Mm. So is that a fair criticism? That mm. is it, Could the public service have done more for Labor and therefore mm. for itself? We can't ignore the fact that we had a pandemic, the most severe pandemic in, in, a, in a century. The outgoing government tried to implement major reforms in many areas simultaneously. So in health, in education, tertiary education, for example, uh, in relation to uh, the three waters, um, in relation to resource management, and, and so the list goes on. And many of these reforms were very big. Um, my sense is that the government may have tried to do too much too quickly. Um, but, but secondly, or thirdly, uh, I think the government can, can rightly feel aggrieved that some departments just didn't deliver quickly enough. So, for example, the resource management reforms. The, the, a major report was finished in August 2020. This is the Randerson report. The Randerson review, admittedly in the, in the middle of a pandemic. But it then took three years to get the legislation uh, implementing the proposals in the Randerson review uh, onto the statute books. Uh, and, it, well, some would say that was the government's fault because it tried to undertake unduly comprehensive reform in the area of resource management. Uh, others might say, well, the Ministry for the Environment could have done the job more quickly. I'm not sure who's right about that, but, but you know, th there will be differing views <laughs> uh, depending on where you sit. Uh, for, for the outgoing government, of course, uh, the unfortunate thing is that the incoming government has said it's going to replace uh, the legislation that it's taken three years to, uh, to, to put on the statute book. So uh, potentially uh, many aspects of what was proposed won't be implemented or will be implemented very differently from what was intended. One of the things I'm sure if, if, if Christopher Luxon's watching this, and I suspect he will, uh, he's going to say none of these cuts will have any impact on frontline services. What does that mean? And what is the difference between frontline and everything else mm. in the public service? So, definitionally, people who are regarded as frontline workers are those who work directly with customers, consumers, clients, citizens. Uh, whereas people who are supposedly back office staff don't have that direct interaction with customers, consumers, clients, citizens. But the distinction is open to debate. For example, thousands of people here in Wellington uh, would see their minister as, if you like, their primary client or, or, or customer. Uh, it's the, their minister who's, in effect, buying their advisory services. Um, so and, 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 uh, and does that make them frontline? I, well, I was going to say Treasury is a classic example of that, isn't it? I mean, Treasury absolutely. has no frontline sort of operation at all, really. It, 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 it's, it well, no frontline if you, if, you, if you take the view that providing advice to ministers is that's not a frontline service. Other than service. that, so, yes. yeah, that's yes. it, isn't it? That's yes. their job. And yet it, but that job is, is absolutely crucial. Critical, right. Yes, absolutely critical. Yes. So um, 
it, the second point to make here, I guess, is that frontline staff, even defined narrowly as people simply engaging with citizens, say not ministers, their capacity to engage depends heavily on the quality of the back office staff. So this is people working in human resource management, financial management, accounting, communications, uh, information services, IT, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, you know, significant cuts to so-called so back office functions could have, at least in some cases, a very detrimental effect on the capacity of so-called front-line staff uh, to do their job. So I think we have to be very, very careful here. Um, simplistic language here uh, does not really help. We, we, we need a much more sort of sophisticated understanding of the interdependencies between different parts of an organisation and indeed between different organisations. It's October 2023. If we are sitting here in October 2026, mm. what do you expect to have changed? Well, I think we'll have a somewhat smaller <laughs> core public service. Uh, we'll have a somewhat smaller amount of money, at least in real terms, probably spent on uh, the core public service. Um, uh, I suspect we will have had put in place a series of public service targets, uh, which is what the previous uh, national-led government did, and public servants will be focused very specifically on uh, trying to meet those targets. Um, I, I suspect we will have a stronger focus on delivery, ensuring that people get the kind of public services that the government wants them to have and that they're entitled to. So I, I suspect those are some of the things that will be uh, uppermost, at least in the minds of, of, of ministers and, and some voters. Uh, for myself, what I would say, among other things, is that the public service undertakes literally thousands of tasks. Many of them uh, people never see the, you know, in their normal life. It's pursuing thousands of different objectives and, and that it, it, it's really rather, how can I put it, um, unwise to focus unduly on, on the number of staff in a particular part uh, of the public sector or on a particular number when it comes to uh, expenditure uh, on a particular part of the, of, of the public sector. Um, I think there are more you know, critical uh, things than that in the end, which includes having a public service which is trusted by citizens, having a public service that uh, has the capability to respond to crises such as a pandemic, such as a massive earthquake, such as we've had 17 severe weather events that have triggered uh, declarations of states of emergency this year alone. We need a capacity to respond to those sorts of things. Uh, counting the number of digits or the number of people or indeed the number of dollars is not, in my view, necessarily the most important thing. We, we, we have to be able to protect the interests of citizens uh, now and in the future. And, and we need to bear in mind that this is really quite critical. We have enormous challenges facing this country and indeed humanity as a whole over the coming years. Huge technological changes, massive changes in demography, big geopolitical changes, and perhaps above all, extraordinarily difficult and challenging ecological issues, not least climate change. We need a public sector that can provide really good advice and, and, and uh, be able to 
put New Zealand in a position to both minimise the sort of risks that we suffer, but also maximise the opportunities that this confluence of very powerful forces is going to generate. Emeritus Professor Jonathan Boston. We actually recorded for a lot longer with Professor Boston, including a discussion about who the incoming government might appoint to be the Public Service Commissioner, that job coming vacant, which is among the most important unelected jobs in the country. If you want to see the whole interview, go to our YouTube channel. That's NZ, sorry, at NZQ&A on YouTube, at NZQ&A. Stay with us. We'll be back after the break. That's Q&A for this week from the Q&A team, particularly Helen McElain. Thanks for watching. And na mihiki a koutou in kareri. And, oh, Jack will be back next Sunday at 9. He's having a well-earned break. Hope you're resting, Jack. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.